AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So, Matt, I hear you've got a new interesting story about the Satori botnet. Yeah, this one is pretty interesting. Uh, it's the culmination of research by a couple of different research groups, SANS ISC, Chihu360, and Graynoise. And they all observed that the Satori botnet, which is one of those offshoots of Mirai, had started scanning on port 3333. Now, SANS took the tack of trying to you know, take a look at the, the packets that were actually being sent and reverse engineer what the attack is based on that. Uh, others were able to take a look at the sources of the traffic. Others took a look to see if there were any vulnerabilities existing on that port. That port is usually related to the Claymore mining software, which is like a dual purpose miner for different uh, cryptocurrencies. And the bug in itself is that there is a specific set of calls you can use. One of them allows you to specify like a reboot.bat file, which is the next time this device reboots, reboot.bat gets run. Whatever's in there runs. The other one is reboot the device. So between the two of those two, what you've got is command execution on the box. So what the attackers were doing, scanning the internet for these boxes, when they find one, pushing up a special you know, reboot.bat, rebooting the box, and when it restarted, it repointed the mining device's efforts towards a different pool under a different address controlled by the attacker. So whatever work was being done, the attacker now profits. Uh, instead of it normally being used for, you know, doing DDoS attacks against other hosts on the on the network, it is now taking on a new flavor, which allows them to possibly bring in, you know, some money. It's pretty simple, pretty smart. Um, so what you can do about it is, if you're running the Claymore miner, you should update. I mean, they're at 10.0, and I think this is in version 7.3 and beforehand. So updating is one option. Another option is to configure it so that this RPC port is no longer available or to block it from the internet. I mean, really, in general, you shouldn't be exposing these kinds of no-auth, high-privilege ports to the internet in the first place. Uh, but if you're, if you're somebody who mines for cryptocurrency, it might be a good time to just take a look at the way that you're running your operation and make sure that nothing is exposed. Um, what's interesting as well is that there was a vulnerability in GPON routers, I think last week and the week before, yeah. and I think it was the guys from Grey Noise figured out that the sources for the scanning were from a population in Mexico, a very specific provider uh, who happened to run those GPON routers. This seems like this is another step in the building out of the Satori botnet. They get these GPON routers and then they use them and the high bandwidth that they've got to start scanning for even other vulnerabilities. So this is probably you know, part of this ongoing cycle of develop a vuln and then push it out to all the botnet and build, a new, you know, build out the platform a little more. We're basically right now seeing an evolution of botnets. Now before, when we're thinking about botnets, we were thinking maybe about identity theft, DDoS attacks, but now uh, we can add you know, cryptocurrency mining or exploiting these types of things to the list. I can't believe they have you know, such an important port exposed. It's like, I guess you put your cash in a bag, so you're, you're at the gold mine, you're digging your cryptocurrency, and now you're, you give it to a courier to deliver to wherever, mm -hmm. except some other courier <laughs> kidnapped your courier, right? And is now delivering it to the lair of the bad guys. That's pretty much you know, what, what can happen here. Right. It's, uh, it's amazing. You would never do that in real life. Like in real life, if you were actually holding the currency, you wouldn't just 
take, you know, be so lax with your security measures. Uh, you take it all the way to the bank. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you take it there yourself. The, the thing that impresses me the most about it is that most people won't even notice the difference. Like if you're not looking at your traffic, your, your miner is still chugging ahead, you know, whatever stats you're gathering on is like, oh yeah, it sure is working really hard, uh, that you're not seeing any of the benefit. Yeah. And it just sort of silently changes in the background. Interesting attack, uh, effective. There is a patch out for it if you're running the Claymore miner, and if you're running that miner, patch. You gotta make sure your stuff is secure when you're hosting it. Take all the ports that you don't want exposed out, you know, do an assessment, maybe scan your own services, and then shut down the ports that don't need to be accessed. So Stan, there's an interesting vulnerability in Red Hat DHCP client. Can you tell us a bit about it, please? Yes, I love this vulnerability for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first one is the number. You never get so lucky, you know, when you're a vulnerability researcher to get such a pretty vulnerability number assigned to you. It's got one, 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 one. The only thing better, I would say, would be one, three, three, seven. Uh, <laughs> so you just gotta time it right, yeah? You just have to time it right. You gotta save your vulnerabilities. There's a vulnerability in a script um, that has to do with parsing DHCP options uh, in Red Hat. Uh, this vulnerability unfortunately allows remote code to be run on your host, which clearly we don't want to happen. Uh, it only impacted, you know, like these Red Hat derivatives. Like Fedora, right? Yeah, I think maybe CentOS might be, maybe uses the same thing. Um, and it was just this one script. So um, uh, what I did, I always like to look a little bit deeper, you know, where is the vulnerability? You could see the guy tweeted a picture of the code and I loved his tweet because it's like, shows the code with the script and he's like, what could go wrong here? <laughs> and as you look at it, I, I love it because it's got an eval and inside the eval there's all this like, bash stuff that I even had to look it up. Like I didn't know some of those commands that let you parse variables and um, mm -hmm. put them into the environment. Uh, but you could see the problem there is when you echo, uh, you're taking input um, from possibly an untrusted area of the network. I mean, overall, like UDP, uh, DHCP works over UDP, uh, so you could you know uh, lend itself to spoofing, but most of the time when you just plug in your cable for the first time, as long as your computer is configured to do DHCP, you're gonna make a request. An adversary on that switch or local network uh, would be able to then send you some fun thing to do. And you would run it as root. Uh, that's the other bad thing, you know, unfortunately. Some people had come up with uh, proof of concept code that would actually fit in a single tweet, which is always kind of a neat little feat to see, but it's also like, well, you know, it shouldn't be that easy to exploit a code like this. I could see it's basically a command uh, line injection vulnerability there at the end. You could mm -hmm. see one of the options being set uh, to basically do like a netcat. Well, you can use your imagination of what's possible. Yeah, that's a heck of a bug too. Yep. That's one of those things. I mean, command injection is, is, is about as close to game over as you're going to get. Yes. And to get it as soon as you hit the network is, is bonkers. Yes. Yeah. And it's that eval of an echo that makes it possible. Is there ever a really good reason to use an eval? Because it's basically asking you to put in malicious code. It, it basically lets you create code on the fly, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people like the power of it, but when you don't check your inputs, that power can be abused or misused. Yeah. And I'll, like, 
a lot of developers, and I respect this, you know, they like to use these little tools and techniques that are available, like in this case in Bash. Um, like, I don't know if you saw, there's two commas, it, it makes the text lowercase. And then all that other stuff with the percents and uh, the pound signs, that's like string extraction. So he's like removing parts of the string. So basically he's splitting on like the equal sign or you know the con whatever it is that, however the, the HTTP options come across on the network. So very clever, but that combination is deadly there with the echo and then an eval. And you could see you know the input is controlled by the adversary and that's what causes it ultimately, uh, the, you know, the bug to be triggered. Yeah, wow. Just wondering, so is there a, is there a patch for this? Yes, uh, so it's a script basically, you know, that I guess they made some sort of a modification. Uh, but the patch is already out there and so everybody should go and download the latest. So apply the patch if you have um, uh, a Red Hat or one of the derivatives, uh, so you, you are protected. So Manny, I guess you're going to tell us about uh, DDoS attacks using UPnP? Yeah, so this is a, a new DDoS attack. Uh, the, the company that's well known in Perva had some researchers that went out and did some research on a, a amplification attack that they were actually in the midst of mitigating. The findings that they found were very interesting because there were some things that came out of this that were kind of unusual. And one of the unusual things was that they, um, as part of their analysis, when they were looking at some of the packets coming through, they noticed that up to about 12% of the packets that were coming through on this particular attack had unusual source port data. So it kind of was like, this is kind of weird. Why is this coming through with these weird source ports? So, so they started to analyze it a little bit more. Um, and what they ended up finding out was at the crux of this, it actually involves uh, UPnP, which is the universal plug and play, which is on port uh, 1900 UDP. This particular vulnerability allows the rewriting of a configuration file that you, the UPnP protocol uses to, in essence, rewrite the way that the protocol handles or is commanded to do port uh, forwarding. If you understand uh, UPnP, normally P UPnP, when you do a port forwarding, what you're doing is you're, you're creating a rule that basically port forwards an external IP and port to an internal mm -hmm. IP and port. Well, what they find out is that, in fact, you can actually write a rule that changes an external to an external, mm -hmm. not, not the internal in, and vice versa. So they have an external. So what they end up writing is they write a rule that basically takes in and says, hey, anything that you send to me via UDP port 53, port forward that off to a, a DNS server of my choosing, right? On, on port 53, port forward that over to that IP address. So what they end up doing is they have a host on the outside that basically sends in a DNS packet, right? A DNS packet. They send it out on port 1337. So it's basically taking a, a packet, it's bringing it in to, to the front end of this, of this device. So they send the packet in on 1337. And the port forwarding rule is basically taking anything that comes in Right, and it's forwarding it over because of the rule. It basically forwards it out to this DNS server, from which it reflects and goes exactly. out to. So you, you get the reflection from, from at that point. So basically, you've got this packet that comes in. It's a DNS packet, but it's on port one three three seven, which you're not gonna you don't expect. Mm -hmm. 
the rule basically forwards it out to the DNS server. The DNS server responds back. To respond the victim. To the victim, yeah. right? So it responds back to the victim. The victim now gets it, right? The, the port forwarding rule gets it. It takes the response and now sends it back to the original requester, but changes the port on it. So it changes the port back to uh, 1337. So you had it come in at 1337, but it, but it changes it to, because it's an actual DNS request, it goes out 53, the response comes back in 53, but when it goes to forward it back to the original requester, right, it changes it back to 1337 and sends it back to you. It has the side effect of basically shielding uh, the true source of the attack. So attacker is now going through a reflector, which is going through the actual like perpetrator of the amplification attack, and the victim will never know who is the true, uh, I guess, adversary behind it. So is that being used right now? Is that what they said? Or this well, was like their proof is, of concept? This is their proof of concept. So, I mean, if you go to Imperver's page, they have some really nice diagrams that show you, you know, diagrams that I know Stan would approve of that shows, you know, very concise, you know, how the packets are actually sent, which is kind of really cool. But again, just a proof of concept right now. Now, problem is, is all we all know is that this will quickly become, because it's so easy, right? I mean, yeah. and the... There's but a I lot of targets out I there. I you said at the start that they had observed this in the wild somewhere. They did. Okay. They did. So, so clearly somebody's already, somebody using, already using Yeah. Right. Yeah. In general, you shouldn't be exposing UPnP or any of those sorts of services to the outside of your network. Keep an eye on what you're exposing. And if you can turn it off, turn it off. If you can lock it out with a firewall, do that. So Bindu, a lot of folks are talking about GDPR in the last couple of weeks. Um, but it sounds like you've got an interesting spin on it that there's, there's sorts of pros and cons of it that it opens up a new technology market. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, GDPR, the compliance deadline is looming. It's about, um, you know, in a week from now, so May 25th is when the deadline is approaching. So there's a new set of regulations called GDPR, and it's going to require a lot of companies to go and maybe introduce new protections in their environment, possibly procure new equipment. And we've seen that in the privacy technology space, it opens up a whole new market of being able to address this operational problem of managing and maintaining GDPR compliance. And we see that these uh, privacy tools that are out there that help customers manage uh, you know, and operationalize their governance management practices, it could open up a whole set of risks. So like we always suggest to our customers, take a risk-based approach when you're making a technology purchase decision. So when you say a risk-based approach, I guess my first question would be, what are the risks that you would see of somebody trying to uh, abide by the GDPR? What risks does it actually bring into the environment? The risk of a new tool being introduced into a customer's environment would mean that, you know, this tool, you know, think about what um, this tool is going to change that business process and how it's going to change that existing, you know, infrastructure to be able to see, okay, does this, um, you know, tool have access to other information within that environment? Who controls that information? So, you know, compliance is definitely, um, you know, point-in-time effort. So any new introduction in terms of changes to the infrastructure can put you out of compliance. So while you're investing in these tools, it is important to make sure that you take an angle of really investigating how this tool fits into your current deployment. 
you can put in some software, you can bring in a new process, but if you don't fully understand what you're doing, it's totally possible to put yourself in more hot water than you had been before. I think what Bindu is saying is, um, you know, right on in terms of understanding the types of tools that you're now going to deploy, understanding that the, these new regulations are going to really now start putting a, a spotlight on the types of you know data that you're that that tool is is collecting not that those things weren't can being considered before but now there's these now heftier regulations that have some pretty hefty fines i think associated with you know with breaking some of these regulations you know, the key is also because there's so much focus on privacy and there's so much focus on information being collected, while organizations are looking to simplify their compliance, they may end up making technology decisions that in, instead of helping their compliance effort may harm it, right? So you want to make sure that while you are taking a, looking, a look at uh, privacy tools out there, do that with just like with any other security technology. When you are going to make that buying decision, you are going to take uh, a view into how that affects your risk profile. All right, so it sounds like what you would recommend for anybody getting into the GDPR space, which sounds like most people will have to, yeah. is that they have to have a better understanding of their own existing processes before they try and make any modifications in order to meet the GDPR requirements. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yes, it is. To me, it's very important anytime you bring in any tool, you have to do the same type of assessment. You know, whenever a new regulation arises or you bring in a new tool, because if you don't go through the proper checks, um, what, what can happen is you expose yourself to vulnerabilities with that tool. You don't have that tool properly configured, and you might actually think you're in compliance. But because it's not properly configured, it's not properly set up, you're actually out of compliance, which might cause you some of these fines or you know, um, penalties in the future. So GDPR compliance requires a deep understanding of the underlying business process as to how do you collect data, how do you process it, how do you store it. So definitely get the help of a technical expert that can help you understand the technology decisions that you will have to make to support your GDPR compliance. All right, guys, let's take a look at the internet weather for this week. So the top 10 most probed ports. In first place, Telnet. Uh, 8545 is the Ethereum GF daemon, I believe. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH. 445 is SMB. That's coming in fourth. 1433 is uh, MS SQL. 3389 TCP is Remote Desktop Protocol followed by 80, which is all sorts of web stuff, 8080, which is all sorts of other different web stuff, uh, 6379, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and 21 TCP is FTP. Going on to the most sources probing, 445 is at the top of that list. Actually, this surprised me. I went and double-checked my numbers, but the top 10 ranks didn't change. Didn't change. Wow. Not at all from last week, which is incredible. I've never seen that. Except for the 21 TCP bumping back into the, the 10th spot. That's kind of unusual to see sort of, you know, even the, you know, even the top five being in the same position. We had the top, I think, nine this week that were showing the exact same position as last week. So that was interesting. Uh, 23 TCP, we talked about Telnet, 8080 is other weird web stuff, um, often IoT devices. Uh, 5431 is another UPnP port. Um, 80 TCP is HTTP. 80ICMP is echo requests, so someone is scanning, looking just for the existence of hosts, usually just to say, does the host exist or not? 
5555 is Android ADB Debug Bridge. 6881 is BitTorrent. 81 TCP is another one of those web ports that also gets some IoT use. And 21 TCP is FTP. So let's get into it. 3333. This one did not make it into our top 10, but since we talked about it in Satori Botnet, I figured I would bring it up. So this is a 15-day chart, and the story that we covered showed that this port is being scanned to find exposed uh, mining rigs running the Claymore software, which has a real code execution bug. And most of the sources are from Mexico. There's one major source in the Netherlands, but the majority of sources for the scanning activity are from Mexico, from a single uh, uh, network owned by a single provider, most likely because they have the GPON routers that were also mentioned in our story. Uh, so in the last seven days or so, it has been trending back downwards. But you can see that on the 13th, there was a significant spike. Uh, 23 Telnet, it's sort of weird to see this, that it's, it's decreased so significantly. So there was sort of an uptick in the last couple of days, but um, around the 16th, it fell to around 50,000 scan sources per hour. And that's, that's kind of pitiful considering how high it's been in the last uh, 90 days. So, I mean... I suppose it's a good thing that there's no longer as much scanning, but I don't think scanning overall has decreased. I think it's just been retargeted elsewhere. 445 still continues to slowly trend upwards, which is concerning. Yeah, I feel like until people are, are, are patching against Eternal Blue and that family of vulnerabilities, we're going to keep seeing this grow. Well, we just uh, celebrated the one-year anniversary of Eternal Blue. The public release of Eternal yeah. Blue. <laughs> this is true, yeah. Yeah, so continues to continues to grow. Uh, I wanted to go back to port 2000 TCP, which is the MicroTik routers that had a vulnerability maybe a month or so ago. And 2000 wasn't actually the place where the vulnerability existed, but it was a good uh, indicator for whether or not you were actually connecting to a MicroTik router. That has dropped almost to nothing. And this is a 60-day view of it. You see it spiked all the way up to 120,000 scan sources per hour. Now we're down to less than 10,000. So. Again, I think this is part of maybe one of the Satori or Mirai variants retasking itself to look at other ports. Uh, port 8545 we talked about is that GF, Ethereum, JSON RPC port. That's another one of those ports where they've got a, it's just an, an admin interface that you shouldn't be putting on the internet. We've seen a, a significant spike in interest in that port, I'd say around the 12th or 13th of this month. Uh, 5555 is, you know, it's wavering somewhere around 7,000 scan sources per hour, uh, but, you know, not really going any much, much of anywhere. It looks like a, a daily cycle there. Uh, 6379 Redis we've talked about a couple weeks ago. I want to take a look at that one as well. And by default, Redis doesn't authenticate anybody connecting to it. So about a month ago, there was uh, a campaign against these Redis um, machines. Uh, crypto jacking campaign. So it seems like this has been trending upwards ever since. If the article was published in March, which is the far left of that graph, uh, it's only gone up from there. And one of the ones that we saw on our own reports of the, the baselines reports changing significantly was this Kubernetes port. Uh, this 10250, again, another port that is strongly suggested you do not put on the internet. Um, but it seems like someone is interested in that Scan flows peaking out actually in the last 24 hours around, um, I want to say, 35 million. Uh, but this is only a handful of sources in, the Swe in Sweden and the Netherlands. So it's not a huge botnet, but somebody is definitely uh, dedicated to scanning for it. 
And one more from that report, um, 1785 TCP, which I had never heard of before, um, the first significant spikes that we've seen on this port are in the last 90 days. I mean, it was mostly quiet until this window here. It was actually 15 days, uh, but then it, the scan sources jumped up to 180 uh, per hour. And this is another one of those interesting ports that you shouldn't expose to the internet. This one has a, it's a debug service for VxWorks, which is, it's uh, an embedded operating system. It's a lot like embedded Linux, but it's, it's just different enough. And a VxWorks sells this. Not sure what the, the, the point of it is yet, but no one seems to have weaponized it. Otherwise, I would expect to see a trend upwards on this. I would expect there to be you know, some growth in the scanning population, but there hasn't been too much. There's more out there than just what's in our top 10. Understanding what you're exposing on your network and not just what ports are available, but what's the implication? What does that mean when you've got a port 17020? Why do I care that it's, that it's exposed to the internet? Really understanding what sort of software is there, what processes are running, and what abilities that gives you. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.